Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Dispatches. It's been a while since we've done one of these, but they are going to come hot and heavy from here on out. And we are very fortunate today to be in Seattle, Washington, with photographer Stuart Isaac, who is someone uh, I met in 1999 at the Visa Pour Limage Photojournalism Festival in southern France, which at the time, and still is to some degree, I'm sure, was at the time, was it sort of the signature industry photojournalism event around the world, and it was an absolute blast. And uh, my wife and I have been in the van traveling across the West Coast as of late, and we stopped in uh, in Seattle to see uh, Stuart and his wife. And I have to say, the last 48 hours of hanging out with him has been crazy, it's been educational, and it's been a reminder of how much photography is a part of his life in a way that I think is incredibly beneficial for a lot of people to hear because this is Stuart is someone who is uh in my my book a straight up legit photographer and that translates in a variety of different ways which I want to touch on now but uh how are you doing there sir good thanks for coming up to uh, Seattle sorry sorry about the rain (laughs) (laughs) that's okay and uh he just made his coffee and uh and toast so we're we're sitting pretty a good British breakfast. <laughs> yes. And, uh, well, it's funny you mentioned the British thing because uh, I always joke that Robert Pledge, who's the, the director of Contact Press, has an accent that's impossible to, to identify and peg. He's the international man of mystery. And you yourself have a bit of that accent. So let's talk a little bit about that accent, a little bit about the family, because you've got some um, some English in the history. You've got some Wyoming in the history and a variety of other places. But let's talk accent, family, and education and, uh, your, and your photo education in particular. Well, well, the accent comes thicker when I'm being interviewed. So uh, if, it was, <laughs> if I said my, if my regular friends will think, why is he sound so British? So um, uh, American family moved to Europe, birthed me in Switzerland, and then we moved to London. And my, I had American parents who grew up there, and they sent us to all English boys' school. Um, you know, it's something you see in a movie um, with boys' caps and uniforms and everything and the ties and three American boys in these schooling systems being tortured by the Brits. And then finished and came back to the States, went to university here, went to Michigan. Then I left, moved to Asia because I was decided I want to be an Asia specialist. Well, wait, 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 wait. We so, got to we got, we so back accent, up here. The accent, the, accent, the accent kind of comes and goes. Yeah. Um, it comes when I'm being interviewed or being stopped by the police. Okay. Uh, this, yeah, that's this, good. This, Smart. <laughs> generally, the two situations it works best. So. So you came from you went from English boarding school. Now I hear that. Not boarding school. It was boarding school. I wasn't a boarder, but. Yeah. Okay. And I I hear that, and I think of the classic books of literature that I've read that detail that life, and I'm like, wow, that seems way way too serious for me as a as a Texas public school survivor. Mm-hmm. Um, but you came back and you ended up at University of Michigan. But what was your undergrad study? Uh, undergrad was actually Asian studies and history. And why on earth study that? I, I was interested in history. I grew up in Europe, and I wasn't going to study European history. And actually, my brother, my brother, who's a China specialist and teaches at university in the Midwest, um, suggested one class. It was a Vietnamese history class. And I got wrapped up in Southeast Asian history, um, particularly Cambodia. Um, not so much Vietnam, although that was my initial class, but um, Cambodia and Thailand and Laos. And I studied Thai language for two years at Michigan, and yeah, it was it was kind of hard to explain. And that was back when you would say I was studying Thai, and people would go Taiwan. They couldn't. Yeah. They did. <laughs> American, you know, nineteen eighty. This is nineteen eighty five, eighty six when I made that. You know, started doing that. There were no Thai restaurants. It was you know people didn't know about you know it just wasn't on people's map. You know, yeah. forty years ago, thirty five years ago, this stuff just. 
you know, now people are out there Instagramming, but yeah, it wasn't like that when I was <laughs> 1986. They couldn't put it on a map. So you see everything you skipped over by jumping all the way to Asia right away. So, oh, yeah, there's yeah. all this good stuff. Oh, now, I think, th- to me, that's a very telling thing. To st- First of all, go to Asian studies. You have a brother who's a China specialist. Mm. I think all of these things that we're mentioning, the, 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 the reason they're important is the context of what they eventually led you to in your life. Yeah. And so you go to University of Michigan, and you're, you're, uh, you know, you're studying Thai, and you're an Asian studies and history major. But then you went back and you went to grad school at Columbia. Well, there was a period in between. So I, I finished, I finished, um, and it involves motorcycles. Okay, good. Uh, <laughs> that's that's why we're here. And, <laughs> any story that gets derailed involves motorcycles for some reason. So I, I go to, I graduated from Michigan and I, um, went to Bangkok and it was in a Thai, intensive Thai language program at Chula Longkorn University there. And I was teaching English and I was like, I'm going to be an academic. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that and, phase. And my brother okay. was on that track, and it just kind of made sense to me, and I was fascinated with this shit. And then I rent, well, got a motorcycle. Uh-oh. Yeah, and hit the and said, I'm going to ride around to I My like, Thai skills were good enough at that point that I could get around and go travel around Thailand. I had a camera with me. I had an FM2. Still have the same camera. And off I went with a motorcycle and a camera. No helmet. I look at the pictures. I'm like, oh, that's insane. What I did, I would never do that now. And but I rode around the countryside with a camera and came back to Bangkok. And then I came back to the U.S. because my program ran up. It was I was there a little over a year, and I was like, I don't want to be an academic. Yeah, I, there's I, life out there. I, there's life out there, you know. And and I I have full respect for academia, but it just wasn't for me. I, I I'd much rather be in the village, shoe talking with these. Thai farmers and going to a dance and, you know, doing yeah. whatever it was. I just, just to me, it sucked me in. And what, how'd that FM2 end up in your hands? Um, I had always had a bunch of Nikons and I think I just, some God, and you up. still use Nikons. I still use Nikons. Yeah. Don't, yeah. don't tell, uh, don't tell Amy. Don't tell Amy. Um, but that's incredible actually. And that's, it seems trivial, but you've used Nikon since the day I met you and yeah. you're still using Nikon. It's just, in, you know these, where the buttons are. Yeah, in this in this industry and markets today, that's kind of rare. But it's yeah. I actually really like that. And of course, most of us started with Nikon's um, in general. I had an FM two, FE two, FM, F F F three, all those things. Mm. So you're you're riding around helmetless in Thailand with your camera, taking bad pictures, taking bad pics. But you said to yourself, "Okay, I know at least I don't want to be an academic." Um, when was that transition of maybe this camera is the part that's going to take over? So I came back to the U.S. and um, my I have two brothers. The other brother was in Chicago with a he let me sleep in his house for six months until his wife kicked me out. Um, and there was I just I was working in a coffee shop in Northside Chicago. Um, I hung up my bad pictures on the wall. I still remember this exhibit. I, you know, I was like, can I hang my pictures in Thailand? People are like, oh, wow, Thailand. I look at these pictures now. I'm like, oh, God, this is embarrassing. And I just, I think I maybe met some photographers, like, well, people studying. And they said, oh, there's this school here in town, Columbia College. You can take a photo class. And, you know, I hate saying in the old days, this stuff was cheap. Yeah, yeah. Um, not usually, but it was like cheap. So I, I think I took a, I'd already taken some undergraduate photo classes at Michigan. And then, so I, I, I think I was able to jump into photo two. Wow. And I took, a, I took a photo two class or something like that. And I was like, oh yeah, I want to do this. This and is it. Dan, yeah, this is it. And I said, oh, I've already got an undergraduate degree. And they said, well, if you take these, I had to take that and I think two other classes, then you can take grad, into the grad program. Okay. So I did that. Um, and then I, I signed up for the graduate program at Columbia College in Chicago. And that, it, it wound up taking, I think, three years because I went back, actually went back to Thailand at one point. Um, 
So yeah, and that and that's where that was the transition, and uh, actually the specific moment where I said I can't be an academic was watching Spalding Gray swimming to Cambodia. Oh yeah, I have went you, to that. As have I you went see, to the play? Oh, you went to the play? Yeah. yeah. Uh, someone had a video that I had been back in the states for about two or three months, I, and I was just kind of depressed because you you know I just come off this incredible experience. Yeah. And someone said hey, you should watch this Spalding Gray thing, and I watched that. I was like. Oh my God, I, I can't do this. I can't do this as in live a straight life. Yeah. I, I need to be out there. I need to be, yeah. you know, just sucking it all in. So that, that movie was kind of, <laughs> I could, you can blame it all on Spalding Gray. Spalding. I think, yeah, <clears throat> he's, he seems guilty anyway. <laughs> so that's interesting. Now you also started, um, I, there's a project in particular that we're going to talk about later in mm. this interview, which is one of the defining projects of your career. Still is. And did and and that was a project that you completed at least in part during graduate school, right? I yeah, it was actually my graduate thesis. Okay, so we're going to get to that a, a little bit later in this interview. But this began this project. But you said something yesterday, which is, which is, uh, what I want to I want to transfer to now. So you're you're at Columbia College. You eventually get your master's. Yep. And you said that you faced, you had a very interesting interview with someone from a, from a newspaper in the United States, who, someone who will remain nameless, who, who, who looked at the project that you had completed for your master's thesis. Again, we're going to talk about this at the end of the interview because it's, it's important and there's a new book involved. But this person gave you an analysis of your work that was a take from what, what we can call the classic American journalism education, where he looked at this body of work that you'd poured your heart and soul into and said, you know... He, he had a very American sort of classic journalism take on it. And you said, I, I'm at a crossroads here. I, I, have, I have a choice. I can go down that American classic journalism road, or I can go back to Bangkok. <laughs> and, <laughs> These are your two options. <laughs> and, and you went to Bangkok. Yes. And that was a monumental moment. I fled. Yeah, yeah you fled. But yeah. you fled to something, in my opinion, as much as you did away from something. Yeah, because it, it was definitely two something. It was to, to a place that where I spoke the language, I knew the history, I knew the politics, I knew, I and, and I still was still was learning. I mean, I was still young then, but it was obviously a process. Um, so it was a place I felt like, okay, I can work in this culture because I've been studying it. This yeah. is I'm not a I'm not parachuting it. Um, I I also it it, it it is back then Thailand Bangkok a lot more expensive now, but back then it was affordable. Yeah. So, and I had a I, place where I'd been teaching English. I knew, well, you know, when I get there, if I don't get any photo work right off the bat, I'll teach them English. And, uh, sure. and Jenny, my wife, and my girlfriend was with me too. We taught English a little bit until things kind of got started. It took about six months. But I, it gave me the freedom to just go there and just do stories. Just shoot some stories. And, and not worry about right off the bat making money from them. You know, go, not going straight up. Well, go out and get a job, son. Yeah. Because that's what the American photojournalism path then. I, there was a guy I actually used to hang out with in Chicago, um, Jeffrey Brown, who was working on a project about heroin addicts, but he was working in a small town newspaper in Springfield, Illinois, and, you know, had the big, you know, that was going to follow this path, you yeah. know, this, yeah. this, this, you know, the, the classic yeah. knockway path. And, and I just, I was like, oh, I can't do that. And I, I, basically, I did. I was an intern at a paper. Then you tried to get a staff job at yep. a paper. The path that that exactly. Was I was about. actually suggested get a, come an intern was what I was told. Yeah, get you get an internship, and then you hopefully parlay that into a staff job, and then you start freelancing for editorial on the side of your newspaper job. 
and then eventually you quit the newspaper and go into editorial free, freelance, and then the editorial leads to commercial, to hopefully to advertising, and that was the track at the time, and you and I were talking about this yesterday. That track, for the most part, doesn't exist anymore, so the, pa the paths that we had are gone now. There's a whole different set of paths, but at the time, so you, and, and let's face it, Bangkok and whatever this was, 1990-something, 94, in terms of being a visceral place compared to mm. ending up in a place like Springfield, for example, <laughs> you know, you can't, that's a very, very different lifestyle that you're choosing. Yeah. But I want to I emphasize something here, and we talked about this yesterday as well. We're talking about photojournalism, which is a very, I think it's a little bit of a misunderstood notion today because there's not as much of it around but we're talking about the the range of work that you would encounter as a photojournalist is about as wide as possible okay. so if someone was asking me about you as a photographer one of the things that i would say and how i would describe you is you can put him anywhere at any time and he's going to come away with a picture and i think that that is a very specific skill set that is not taught a lot today and i don't see that same thing in a lot of photographers who are coming up today because they'll specialize in one thing at landscape or, you know, whatever, or they're more of like a social media driven photographer. But speak to that a little bit in terms of the range of what you were encountering from the, from the get go. Well, the range was actually pretty narrow when I started. I mean, it was, uh, you know, black and white. Yes. Yeah. T76, you know, and then, you know, I, I moved to Bangkok and very quickly I, I learned, well, I'm not going to get any work with this. I'm going to better start shooting color. And I think it was chrome. So, you know, and I probably, I, I knew what I'd do. I knew how to shoot chrome. So, and, but um, the other thing about Columbia was that we had to take commercial photo studio classes. So even though I was the black and white guy embedding in a story, having my own film, we had to sit in a studio and learn how to light stuff. Which and, is now coming back later in your career. Which, well, it always was there. It's, it was my dirty little secret. Um, you know, because all these photographers I knew in Bangkok, none of them understood lighting. They didn't even understand natural light because studio lighting teaches you about natural light. It just teaches you about light, period. When you have to create your, build your own light and you go out in the real world, you've, you've got an advantage. And none of the photographers I knew could do this stuff. Um, and so it, that was something that I was always able to tap into later on, and actually throughout my career, to fund my habit, as it were. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's I don't want to, I don't, I, a dirty little secret. It's not, it's really a secret. Everybody knows I do, I've done commercial work on the side. But it, it, when I first started, it was very minimal. It was, I, I was still, you know, the first 10 years of my career were slide film, pitching my own story ideas, going out and selling them. And, and we talked about this yesterday. This, yep. this is the end of the magazine era. And I was the, uh, what would you call the, the gap generation between the old guys, Greg Davis and all these guys who I was working around, who were the old contract time guys working on two weeks assignments to suddenly like, can you do this shoot in the morning? Yeah. And with, with no budget. With no, with less, but well, less budget, <clears throat> um, to now where there's no magazines period. Um, so that, and that's where I first started pitching the work, but I discovered a little thing, which was a problem, which was my stories were too embedded and too unique to the places I was going at that no large mainstream magazine would touch them. You know, they're just too obscure. So I discovered, hey, there's magazines in Asia. There were magazines in Kuala Lumpur. There were magazines in Hong Kong. There were magazines in Tokyo. There were magazines everywhere. It wasn't great money, but they took these stories. So I could go out and just find an interesting story and make my duplicate slides and send it out and make a living doing that. 
Well, and you're, yes, we're talking about two tracks as well. Uh, and I want to get back to the tribe of people that you're hanging out with, the Greg Davises and the Phillips and everybody else. But we talked about this yesterday. It's really important that, the, and, the, and people are still doing this today, uh, is, and I'm doing it in some weird way that doesn't involve doing assignment work, but there's the track of the daily assignments where mm-hmm. you're making money, and that's what I would call a short-term track. That's the turn and burn stuff. Can mm-hmm. you go shoot a picture of a headquarters of a building or a mm-hmm. portrait of someone? And that's a quick turnaround assignment, and boom, you're off. But you're taking that money, and then you're going and you're going into the remote parts of Asia and doing these long-term stories, mm-hmm. which you're then presenting. So, and that's on your own dime. Mm-hmm. But you're then taking those stories and presenting them to these magazines in Kuala Lumpur, Japan. And over time, that is the work that most identifies you, at least you know, in some ways, with you as a photographer. And it and that does make money, but it could take a year, two years mm-hmm. for that money to come back. Is that was that the primary working yeah. op, oper, you know operating system? Yeah, yeah. That for 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 at least the first ten or twelve years of my my career. Yeah. While the magazines were still well, going. yeah, while the magazines yeah were still around, you know. And but it was a lot. As I said, it was churn and burn work. Uh, you know, I did a lot of. Um, after Bangkok, I moved to Tokyo, and it I got, actually got this was '97, and it got ins- my work just exploded then, because I arrived in 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 Tokyo, and there was two other Western photographers there, um, and, and it was like, and suddenly it was every day, constant work, and it wasn't good paying work, but it just was constant. You know, the phone was ringing off the hook all the time. All the magazines were like, you know, new, I, I told you, I joked to you, I had, one day I had an assignment, Time, Newsweek, and Fortune in one day. Yeah. Which which it was just kind of, it just, yeah, that only happened once, but it was a very constant work. But, it, you know, I just managed to arrive at the right time. Yep. It, it was, it was, it was, a lot of it was luck. But I, I had also built up a body of work and I'd been pitching stories to a lot of these editors over the years. So they knew who I was. I didn't, I wasn't some. You weren't. You weren't a totally fresh face. Yeah, yeah. And I built a website in 1997. Wow. I bet it was spectacular. It was. I'd, I'd kill myself for not saving the HTML one. <laughs> my, my, my bio button was a little coffee cup with the steam coming off it. Oh, It was God, beautiful. That's <laughs> classic. <laughs> but um, not that everyone found me through that. But so, yeah. So I started doing that that kind of work. And, that, and again, that funded. And I was always looking for bigger stories. So I was based in Tokyo. And, you know, I started. Go, I, I literally co- always had a ticket back to Bangkok. I used to always buy my tick flights out of Bangkok, round trip back to Bangkok from Tokyo. Open tickets, Air India, $400. I remember this. You could le- keep it open for a year. And I said, hey, I'll be going back here. And I would go back to Tokyo, and I would oh, there's a great story. And I would fly back to Bangkok, email my travel agent there, say, I'm going to Rangoon. And I would contact, I would always pitching to writers. I knew all these freelance writers. I could write, but sometimes there were stories I knew yeah, I yeah. wanted to work with a particular writer. Yep, and we would go off and do these stories, and then we would come back, uh, edit my stuff. You know, maybe but I think back then I was starting to scan a little bit, but you know, I was still making dupes of my slides and send them off to Sydney Morning Herald, the Hong Kong, um, the, the South China Morning Post, um, Sekai Magazine in Tokyo, Ira Magazine in Tokyo, Men's Review in Kuala Lumpur. You know, it was just this list of magazines, and we would send it out, and you get, you know, over a couple of years, you get a few hits. Pays for the story, pays for everything. I get to do the work I love. Yeah. I edited, I shot it, I edited it, I delivered it. You know, and, and it was, I was able to control that work. It's kind of the dream. I mean, I think that that's ideally what we all got into this to do. And yeah. that is not an easy thing to do. But at the same time, the life that you're living at this time, being able to travel to these places at that time, yeah. like I hear Rangoon and my eyes start spinning. <laughs> 
Um, that, That's how it called saying Rangoon ages you because now it's Yangon. Exactly. <laughs> um, and that I want to talk a little bit about the tribe. So you get to yeah. Bangkok in '94, and there's, um, you know, you're coming. You're married at the yeah. time. No, no girlfriend. Girlfriend. She, she stuck around. So. Okay. She, now it's official. <laughs> you get over there, and you're you're in you're now in the journalism community in Bangkok, which is is it relatively small? Very small. But and. Let's talk about competition and let's talk about friendship and the balance between those. Was there what was the the situation over there in terms of these people that you're spending a lot of time with? Well, there, there was basically two schools of photographers there. There were the wire guys, and then there were me, Philip Blenkinsop, Nick Dunlop, Ollie Pinfat. You know, I can go down the list. Gary Knight, who who at that point had moved on, he was at that point living in Europe, and but a lot of people coming back through. There was just kind of the the people doing the same thing I was doing, which was figuring out how to do this. Yeah. Um, you know, and and we as we've talked repeatedly about the last few days, Philip became a good Phil Blenkinsop, became one of my best friends and deeply inspirational for my work. Just you know, he's such an passionate, intense photographer. I, you very rarely meet a person like this in your life. <laughs> yeah. And he but he was also a great teacher. And we were definitely competitive. You know, there was always like oh, you know, I hate to say it, we're Anglo-Saxon yeah. males, so there's yeah. there's just this natural stupidity to us. <laughs> but but Philip was a great teacher, and I, and and I literally saw him building his books in my apartment at points, and I would see him working. And we have different styles, but I learned a lot from him. I learned so much from him. I hope maybe he learned. Maybe someday he'll say he learned something from me. I don't know if he would, but but it was the best learning tool. And then also other 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 seeing other photographers in that who were kind of coming cuz you have to remember Bangkok so Bangkok in the early 90s so it was a, that's when the generational shift happened. All those Vietnam era guys were kind of aging out. Yep. Um and you know they're still going around their safari jackets, you know, almost with a pit helmet <laughs> at this yeah. point, you know. <laughs> but we kind of looked at them like, dude, come on. That that era is over. Um and so there was kind of a new generation who, and, you know, I don't want to say we're kind of generation punk, but, you know, we all kind of came age in the 70s and 80s, um, very different mindset. Um, uh, and we didn't fall into, as you talked about American photojournalism school, this is why yeah. I couldn't do it here. We didn't fall into that kind of narrow, confining view of photography. Right. So here's Philip smearing blood and writing on his photographs. And I'm just like, oh, wow, you yeah. can do that. I never thought of that. I never thought, well, you know, we, we, know, we know that some of the other people who've done this, we've talked about this, but it was just, but doing photojournalism this way. Yeah. And I was like, wow, this was so liberating. Yeah, I mean, the first time I met, uh, <clears throat> I don't know Phil very well, but I met him a few times at Perpignan, and he was in the back of the Hotel Palm, mm. and he had this oversized journal book, and he was building these pages in the journal. And first of all, you look at him, and the way he's dressed and everything, mm. Philip's a very distinctive dude. And then looking at that work and the polar, you know, four by five Polaroids of heads on poles yep. in some remote section of Asia where there's a civil war going on. And then, you know, with p pig blood around the outside of it. And you're like, yeah, this is not, this guy doesn't fit in the bucket of internship in American yeah, newspaper. Yeah. But he started at an Australian paper, yeah. you know, and sort of, and I think to your point, he probably got into that, that little box and said, okay, this doesn't fit me either. Yeah, yeah. I want out of here. And then went on to be the guy that he is, that he is now. But, but Philip, and this is important, reads photographs the way you and I do too. Maybe it's a generational thing. He can put a photograph down and discuss every minutia in that picture and why it works. We had this, he had this running thing like, you know, he liked hands in pictures, like just, just hands coming into the frame. 
And so who could get the most random hands in a frame picture? And I was sometimes, email, once we were able to email, I would get a picture, like, I got seven random hands in this picture, and I would send it to Phil. But it, it, to me, it spoke more of, we, from the days when we were in, I was in grad school, when you'd put photographs up on the wall, and everybody would spend, you know, I'd put up 10 pictures, and then spend 30 minutes talking about one picture. And going around that frame, and I can still do it on some of these pictures up here, like this. Yeah, okay, that's so this, a great frame. This, this is my picture. Maybe you can sh show it somehow. The Rocket Fest one. I actually went after Philip went. Okay. And I'm just going to say, he didn't get in a picture like that. He, he did some <laughs> great work, yeah. but that was such a unique picture. Yeah, that's a great frame. I mean, it's this I'll, rocket I'll, I'll going. I'll make a pick and add this in. This rocket's going in the air. It's just a rural Thai rocket festival. This guy's jumping up right in the line of the smoke. He's got his finger pointed up, matching the rocket. There's a guy on the left with a cigarette in the air that matches. The, it's the same scale as the rocket. It just it worked perfectly. But it's the kind of picture that I've been staring at for 25 years, and I still see something different in it. And pictures weren't disposable to us. But they, they weren't thrown up on, we'll get to some short, Instagram yeah. and vanished right. down the feed. These are pictures that, I, and you see on my wall, these are the pictures I can look at day in, day out, day out. Maybe it's an obsessiveness in our brains. Yeah. And, and, and just go, God, I never noticed that. Or I, and I'm seeing something new every time. Well, but the difference is, I think one of the, one of the things you're, you're referencing is that there's a difference between content and photography. Yeah. And photography, a picture like that, you, I will, it's your image, but I, I can give you this label on this particular picture. That is a great photograph. And there's a difference between good and great. And so good is what I see most of the time. And even the stuff that's getting high traffic, high likes, high praise, most of the time it's either average or, or good. You know, it's not, it's very rare that you see, I think great photography is rare. That's a great photo, which is why you can stare at it for a long, for a long time. Mm -hmm. And I think being able, and we're going to get to this a little bit later on, but photography to a guy like you, this is not a hobby. No. This is in your, and Amy, my wife, who's as, who's as high, high energy, high motor as you're going to find, she said to me yesterday, he's, Stuart is the only guy that I, realize, I see myself in because he's basically, he's as crazy as I am. And you're, you're, all we've done for, for two days is talk about photography. But we've talked about it from 50 different angles. But there's a, po a point about this I want to make, which is, and this picture, which I'll photograph and show, show for this interview, you are doing, and to me, this is where we separate the, the, the pros from everybody else is that you are a people-based story yep. photographer. This is not national park landscapes. Yep. Every, you are in the middle of this. You're in the middle of these cultures and these people and these lives, both rural and, and urban. This is a very intense, tricky job that requires, just to get into that festival and get into that position, requires a specific ability to speak a language that's far outside of photography. And not just speaking Thai. Exactly. Yeah, it, I, I mean, even if that was country, I mean, obviously that's Thailand, so I spoke the language. But even yeah, I, I, it, people always say like the, and you'll we'll talk about this later. My my first project on the Cambodian gangs. It's like people like kind of talk, ask me about it. And I go, you know, when I think back to what I was doing, I don't remember myself taking these pictures. What I remember is sitting around in apartments with these guys smoking cigarettes and talking shit all day long. Yeah. Um, that's what I remember. I actually don't remember taking the pictures. <laughs> you know, I can't remember. Oh, I remember. Oh, especially, I don't remember that. But obviously the pictures became because I was, and I, it might have a lot to do with the way I was raised. I was raised 
as an American in the UK, so I was always kind of a foreigner, and this in the 70s, um, and I've never quite felt like I fit in, and I moved to the US, and I didn't fit in here, so my whole, and I've traveled quite a bit as a kid, and my parents gave me very free range. I mean, you know, they, they, people talk about free range kids today. I look and I go laugh. I just go, <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, my parents let me backpack across Europe when I was 14 years old. That's how free that's range. That's kind of free. That's very, very free range. And, and my mom, I still tell my mom some stories. She's like, what happened? I'm like, no, no, no all right. Um, but, so, but, so, but part of that, that experience was the ability to just be able to plop myself anywhere. And, and just, I'm fascinated by people. I mean, it drives my kids nuts. I've started up conversations stuck in a traffic jam in here in Seattle with a window with the people in the car next to me. And my daughter was sitting there like, oh, my God. Dad, please, why are you talking to strangers on the street? I said, well, they, they, they you They're know. stuck. We're, we're not strangers anymore. <laughs> we're not strangers anymore, exactly. And it's such an important skill. And, and it might be just because of my uniqueness of my upbringing, but you didn't get that uniqueness, and you can be plopped down anywhere and do the same thing. Yeah. I, I think it's more, it's a fascination with humanity. Um, it's a fascination with way, why humans do things, why people do things, which I find is there's so many universals. You know, I, I know we've come, everybody thinks we're very tribal, but I've always, I've never seen that because I can go to the most out-of-the-way place up in the mountains somewhere in Indonesia, and it's like, you know, they're, they're, this, they're fighting for the same things. Yeah. You know, a roof over their heads, love. Yep, food, I, I, food I, I, water, you, shelter. You, you sound like an old hippie talking like this, but and I'm not an old hippie. I'm generation punk, but you just found this experience, and it's just expressed in very different ways. Sure. And obviously the values that people obtain these things are very different, and some societies do it very differently. And that, But that's, that's what I've been, always been fascinated with. So I can go anywhere, and and I feel like I can read the scene. I can read what's going on. I can judge it well. I once described photography as like dancing. Um, you know, you it's, it, you when you go and dance with someone, you know, you're either going to slow dance or fast dance. You don't know what's going to happen, but you better make sure you don't step on anybody's toes. <laughs> and that's what photography is like. You're dancing with a stranger. Don't step on their toes. Yeah, and follow their lead. And, well, yeah. and, and see how they operate and try to learn from them. So when I'm in there with a camera, I, you know, I, I'm always, you know, when I'm out in Cambodia or with these Cambodian American guys, I don't pretend I'm one of them. You know, I'm this yeah. upper middle class waspy guy, but I, 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 and I don't hide that. I don't try to pretend I'm anything else, but I'm just genuinely curious about why they do the things they do. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's um. So that's I, the that's, sorry. Getting back to your point about people centered photography. Yeah, so. and I think you know a lot of times people when I'm especially working with younger photographers, there's often and I totally get this. There's there's this fear of you know, hey, I don't know those people. Like, how am I supposed yeah, to go yeah, photograph yeah, them? Yeah, yeah. And for some weird reason, that's what fuels you, and it, it's what fuels me is getting looking at the like I don't know anybody in Thailand or a Thai mm-hmm. rocket festival, but I see that picture and I'm like, I want that's where I want to go. I want to go there. I want to mm-hmm. do that because. Yeah. And learning how to navigate that space without even necessarily having to say anything is, again, a skill set that you, you, uh, you basically attain over time by the practice of doing all this. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you're here. You're in Bangkok. You moved to – let's talk Tokyo, Paris, and on to Seattle because there, <laughs> there was a fringe interlude here <laughs> in the middle. Fast forward. Because <laughs> yeah. we're going we're to come back here uh, to where we are now, but I want to talk – so you, you, you're starting to dabble in Tokyo. So, so, yeah, so we are based in Bangkok. Um, 
97, the Asian crash happens. Jennifer at that point was actually working in a, as a graphic designer at a newspaper in Bangkok that um, folded, um, Asia Times. Okay, which wow, was a big kind, one. That, yeah, and people, it was pretty legendary back then. There's, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of tales from that place. <laughs> um, so uh, that all collapses, and we I had already been going up, flying up to Tokyo. I had one friend up there, an English guy I knew. Um, I would fly up there and, and just go up for a week and sell stories and come back with... 10,000 yen notes in my pocket, literally, because Japanese back then paid me cash. It was great. You walk in the office, sell a story. They'd give you an envelope of crisp 10,000 yen notes. Gotta love that. I know, I know. You, you had to count them in front of them, and then I'd get on the plane and fly back to Bangkok with 300,000 yen in my pocket, <laughs> <laughs> which was, you know, killer money in Bangkok back then. So, but anyway, so we decided, let's move to Tokyo. Uh, to Tokyo. And Jenny actually, through a connection, Bangkok got a part-time job with AP. Okay, so and Jenny's we, your wife. My, uh, yeah, actually got married that year. Okay, ninety seven. In this, in this in between, yeah, right between Bangkok and Tokyo, we decided to get married, and then okay. we moved to Tokyo, newly married. Um, you know, and I, I still kind of think back, like, what the hell was I thinking? You know, moving to what was it's now not so expensive, but back then you know, it was still pretty damn expensive, oh, relatively, yeah, yeah. especially compared to Bangkok. Um, and we moved in. We struggled. You know, t- Japan is very hard to get set up in, but once you get set up, it's pretty straightforward. Um, and then the phone started ringing. A lot. A lot. Uh, you know, it just started. And, you know, the first six months, and then suddenly, boom, boom. And then 98, 99, 2000, 2001, 2002, it was just nonstop. Um, Jennifer got a full-time job, and we just, that's where we based ourselves. But yeah. I was traveling out a lot. But that was, you know, if I was going to say, when are your peak photography years? That was it. And it was nonstop. I mean, I could show you my invoices. It was just like, it's New York Times time, Fortune Newsweek, it was just nonstop. And were you, were you, as a photographer, were you on the same track system of using this money to go do my own projects? Because we, you have yeah. Kyoto Land, yeah, which yeah, is a yeah. project we're going we're yeah. to touch on here in a minute. Same track. Yes, but, the, but of course, the time, yeah, it was hard to get windows to travel. Because, because you're shooting all the time. Because I'm shooting all the time. So I literally have to say, okay, I'm just, you know, I'm taking a month off. You know, and, and you, you got to be careful because your clients, you, you well, they, start, they, start call, they start calling other people. Yeah. Um, so I'd often actually, I would go place and say, I'm going to be here doing this. Do you, have, do you have some work there? And they would toss me some work, especially with time. Um, so, so, you know, it was, it was a juggling act. But yeah, I just kept juggling. But, you know, there, there, there was a lot of photographers in Tokyo who spoke English and I spoke a little, just enough Japanese to get around. Um, so it, 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 the work always kind of came back to me. But it was also, a lot of this just had to do with the economics of the industry. It still was chugging along. Um, the guys who were all 25 years older than me, Greg Davis, who was a contract time photographer in the 70s and 80s, yeah. were livid. And, you know, when I talked to younger photographers, the ones who are now me. Yeah, and yeah now, back then. And now Greg Davis. Um, I always explain, there's only one universal I've ever noticed in photography. What's that? People complain. Yeah, <laughs> they they sit around no. coffee shops or bars and talk about how screwed up the industry is and how unfair it is and how cruel it is. I'm going, yeah, it's it, and you got to shut it off. Yep, you have to ignore it. Just get it done, and you got to go out and work because the people who I'm going to say piss and moan, yeah, all the time. Well, it, it, it's like then you're you're in the wrong business. Quite because cause you have to. I don't want to say you have to have a thick skin, but you have to be able to. It, nobody. I always say, if you want loyalty in this industry, get a dog. Yeah. You want a friend, buy a dog. I, I've, I, I just like, you know, it's like I have a few gigs now that have been going on, like kind of regular work now for yeah. like one client for 10 years, which is just astonishing to me. 
and every year in January, and when we talk about renewing my contract, I'm always expecting them to say, "Yeah, yeah, we're done, we're done." And I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna be like, "Nope, oh, thanks a lot," and move on. So, question: <clears throat> You hit Bangkok in '94. So, so we're up in Tokyo. Yeah. Yep, and then '97, you're in Tokyo. Tokyo, yeah, <clears throat> six years, well, five and a half years. Yeah. By the time, <clears throat> sorry, by the time you leave Bangkok, your style as a photographer you could probably identify in 10 words or less. You know what a good picture is. You know how, what it takes to make it. What was the, the learning curve for the business side of photography? Like when you get to Japan, you said it takes six months to get set up, but once you're set up, you're there. Like uh, in my photojournalism program, we had no classes on business whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. So I got out and I was absolutely clueless. I thought I could make a decent picture, but you, I didn't were, know. Were how... you charging film at cost? <laughs> I don't even know if I charged film. I mean, I, I was happy that I could make a picture that I knew how to make what I thought was a good picture. But I had, it wasn't, the only reason I was able to survive and become a photographer was because the photographers I was assisting for mm -hmm. looked at me and said, you're a complete knucklehead. Yeah, you can make pictures, but you don't know how to, you don't know how to be a photographer. You know what what the, was the curve for you by then? The learning lesson was? Yeah. Sitting around with a, one of these old time, time photographers who just said, oh yeah, I charged, yeah, I, I went on the shoot and I shot 300 rolls of film and I charged $25 a roll. And I went. $25 a roll for film? I, and I was charging at a cost and sending the receipts to my client. I was so naive. Yeah. And these guys were just like, oh, yeah, 300 rolls for $25. Okay. That's more money than I made in three months. <laughs> just in film profit. Yeah. And I didn't realize you could be marking up. You don't mark up your film? Mark up? I had no idea. So I very quickly started, and there was a group back then called Editorial Photographers who formed around 90. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah I remember <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yahoo groups. Yeah. Yeah, and that's what I saw. Contracts? Rights? So Licensing? You had, so you had a steep curve. I had a, it, it, when I got to Tokyo, and it was mainly because I was getting so much work, and I very quickly started. I mean, I'd already done invoicing and accounting. Yeah. And I actually created a FileMaker template for invoicing for my very first assignment, and I still use it today. Wow. Although it's it, it You're lot, talking it, about FileMaker, the program? FileMaker, the program. Yeah, that's been around since like the, Egypt, the Egyptian pyramids. Yes, yeah. exactly. And I created a template and the guts of that template are still my accounting system today. Wow. But I, I knew friends, and I won't name them, but they're yeah. kind of the flaky Bangkok crowd who, you know, would just type up an invoice. Yeah. And, and, like, I'd, and they'd always be complaining about getting not paid. It's like, well, if you have a proper accounting system, they know it at the other end, they're, they're going to pay you because they're like, oh, this person, they, they will take it advantage of your flakiness and so by the time you hit tokyo let's yeah. say you've been in tokyo for two years yeah your business savvy has your acumen's grown yeah. in parallel now with your photographic ability yeah and how much how much of getting an, an assignment at that time or even so much so today i think that there oftentimes what kind of gets misunderstood sometimes is the the relevancy of the photography in the grand scheme of things yes it's important but also a client is reaching out to you again and again because you are trustworthy to return with a picture. Yeah. But it's, that's a piece of the puzzle because the other piece is, can he get to the North Korean border in 48 hours? Yeah. Yes. We don't know how, but if we assign him, he'll get there. Can we leave him with a client on the set or on this story and he's not going to embarrass us? Yes. So there's all these other ingredients that get thrown into photography that never seem to get spoken about. But that's a big part of being a professional photographer. And another thing I did, which I, a lot of photographers didn't do, I enjoyed the company of writers. Oh, yeah, I particularly too. enjoyed the company of good writers. 
And I actually did a lot of writing during this year. So a lot of these stories I was doing, I was actually writing myself. And people would say, you're a great writer. You are and, a good writer. And, yeah, and, for sure. And, and, but it's, I, it's a tension span thing. It's like, and it's kind of fills it out. But I enjoyed the company of good writers. I generally found them a lot smarter than photographers. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's a stereotype, like, here's my photographer. But, you know, I, and so, but I, I befriended a bunch of very good writers, and I'm still friends with them. And I, we would pitch story ideas, and some of them worked for the, you know, Time and Newsweeks, and we would talk about story ideas. Or they would come up with story ideas and say, I want to work with Stuart, because they knew when they went out there, they didn't have just some f- guy who's going to show up with a hangover three hours late. I would actually be doing journalism. Yeah, I would actually be saying, "Hey, you know, you know I, I still remember where where was oh in Burma, doing a story on forced labor, with um, Phil Sheenan from the New York Times, and he'd done the, the there was a big moat in the central Mandalay, and they they I had to go out and photograph all these people being forced to dig it out. The next day, I would say, I'm just gonna I had a day off or something. I'm gonna go sightseeing this famous temple up in the hills, where you have to climb up the mountain. And I get up there, there's forced women labor or something." Yikes. So I come back down and I tell Phil. And he's like, straight back up we go. And that was the lead of the story. And and, and I always enjoyed working. Of course, I got no credit. Should have gone to my yeah. own bit, but, um, but But, but I, that's how I enjoyed working. It, I always saw it as a collaborative process. You got to work with this writer. You know, I didn't, if they called me your, their photographer, you know. Yeah, whatever. I just, yeah, you know, whatever. But th- I think they writers enjoyed working with me because I, I'm a, I like to observe. I'm an observant person, and writers sometimes aren't observant. They're they 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 yeah. they're wrapped up in their ideas, or they get they, their observations are through interviews and other stuff. Whereas I'm literally eyeballing people. Like that person looks nervous. That person looks happy. That person looks like they could be part of the story, and just trying to read situations. So. Well, there's a key word here: journalism. Yes, and that's I hate that word though. I I, I like H- it. Human observation. Well, I, journalism, ha, you know, I think good journalism. Let's yeah. maybe you, do you like the term good journalism? I can sugarcoat I it for you. The that makes Re- you happy. Reportage, reportage. <laughs> but I think I think that I, good journalism to me, and it's still happening. It's harder yeah. to find, and you yeah. know, there's not as many venues for it. I think print journalism in particular is still the best journalism I see by far. And I totally agree that the writers are, are uh, when there's a good partnership between photographer and writer, it's legendary. That's where legendary things happen. Yeah. And I think you play off of one another. And uh, being in the field is a lug- – like I, I did a lot of work with writers, but we were never in the field at the same time. And that was always kind of felt like a disconnect. So that that's a wonderful thing. And so you are – Sorry. So what was your original question? Sorry. Back uh, to being in Tokyo. Tokyo and my, my original question was how much how much a part of being a photographer is outside of the actual picture making. Oh, it's the it's the logistics well, and the 90, trust. Ninety five percent of it. Okay, yeah, so yeah, I always yeah, tell yeah, people how, how often you're actually photographing. I tell people it's ninety percent, and they go, "You're exaggerating." So I'm glad to have a little backup here from someone else who's. <laughs> I push it ninety five percent. I mean, this has obviously shifted as my career shifted. So yeah, you know, back back you know in, in twenty years ago it was probably you know eighty percent of it. Or sitting around coffee shops with other photographers. And, and you, you were talking about how I got to Tokyo and why my work kind of, that's when it, I, I just kind of hit this inflection point. Part of it was, and this is what drives me nuts in Seattle, and all my Seattle photographer friends know this, was that when you sat around with someone like Phil and Blankensop and you put out a shit picture in front of him, yeah, you were going to be told that's a shit picture. Yeah. Or any of my friends. There was just, and they're all Australian, so they don't hold back. Um, and, and I had a lot of French, but there, there was a, you know, people just said, this is not up, to, this is not good it's enough. It's not good enough. This is not good enough. And it wasn't like, you know, you're a bad person. It's like, come on. Yeah. You, you know, it was, and, and we, I did it to them too. 
And, and but in Seattle, when I sit around Seattle and photographers, and I go to these photography meets, it's just yeah. I, you you could never say this stuff. You could no, not even and when I meet photographers one on one. I I'm always try to be generous as I can. I always try to find the you know if they show me thirty pictures, I will pick out that one great picture and say that's your good picture. This is we throw away that stuff. Yeah, which happened to me. We've talked about this before. Oh yeah, and then you go forward from that. But but I I I feel people that kind of. Honest, I don't go know honesty, just kind of sharp elbows, willingness to find it. But that, that also the other thing, that in the business side. So I, I, I had that kind of, I was like thrown in the fire pit with these other people who are very. Yeah, talented. Yeah, talented. Much more, I, more talented than I was. I only hang out with photographers who are more talented than me. Um, and and then also, I, but all, unlike a lot of these guys, unfortunately, I actually understood the business side of it. You know, writing up co- licensing contracts, sending out, you know, the bl- simple stuff, sending out yeah. invoices, paying taxes. Oh, pe- yeah. Pe- people yeah, yeah. who, like, I-, I knew one American photographer 25 years overseas, didn't realize he was supposed to be filing taxes with the U.S. government every year. And, I, and, and it was just stuff like this. It was like, I, I don't know. I, did, I just, I, cause maybe because I grew up overseas and my dad was actually a business, but I just kind of knew you had yeah. to, t- you, if you don't take care of this stuff, it's going to catch up with you. Well, yeah, that's the point I want to make is that it, it, being a photographer, I think today there's the facade of what it means. And you see a lot of that online of people living these sort of pseudo, pseudo perfect lives. And you look at it and go, okay, that's just not real, <laughs> but that's getting a lot of buzz and traction today. But I remember assisting and driving down a road in Phoenix with a photographer and he looked at me in the car and he said, how are you doing your taxes? And I was like, taxes. And he's like, he's like, okay, you and I need to have a conversation. And he's the one that put me on the map of like, you need to do this. You need to protect yourself here. This needs to be taken out. And I was like, holy cow, I don't know any of this stuff. Well, editorial photographers, that's when I was first, you know, I joined that Yahoo group and you started going, oh, wow. Yeah. And because that's also when the digital, you know, we're talking early 2000. This is when the digital revolution was just starting. And suddenly all these agencies were throwing out these shitty contracts that I'd never even, I'd never seen the good contracts and I certainly never seen a shitty contract. So I didn't yeah. know the difference. But in that group, I suddenly realized, because, you know, up until probably 98, I hadn't signed anything. I didn't have any contracts with yeah. any of these clients. You Unreal. It was just like, Stuart, can you go there and take pictures? <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I, that's me. That's what I do. <laughs> <That's me. laughs> and then suddenly I realized, oh, I'm supposed to get paid extra for a cover on Time Magazine. I'm going to drop that one on you. I didn't realize that. <laughs> I very quickly realized it and I got paid. Yeah. But I got a cover in Time Magazine and I didn't realize I was supposed to get it. I thought, doesn't my day rate cover that? And Greg Davis, God bless him, the late Greg Davis said, you idiot. Because he yeah. saw the cover. Yeah. You left all this on the table. He left all this table and I quickly said to email or fax whatever I did and whatever year that was and bang, the money appeared. Yeah, because the editor, pro- the editor it. probably, yeah, I had to ask for the editor. Yep. The editor would have probably just, yeah. <laughs> yeah, money and the business side of photography, which I want to jump forward here a little bit. So we're going to jump to Seattle. We're going to skip over Paris. Okay, for now, yeah, well, Paris wasn't. Paris is Paris. Paris is Paris. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're we're going to skip to Seattle, yeah. and you've been here for since I don't know what two thousand six. Two thousand six. Yeah. And if I was going to describe you today as a photographer, if someone asked, I would say the same thing. You can put him anywhere and he'll make a picture and a good picture. But you're a commercial photographer. Yes, I guess I am. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'd say 95% of my work, yeah. And tell me yeah. what that means. What does it mean? I, I have to kind of describe the transition. So I moved back here and I was still editorial guy. But I'd, oh, in Japan, I started picking up commercial work. Um, and I had always done a lot of business news photography. 
Okay. And I tell other people, say, whenever you see kind of a picture of some guy in an office doing something, invariably the photographers walked in. The guy in the office said, what do you want me to do? Yep. And the guy, and you kind of go, uh, I'm not supposed to say that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not supposed to tell you what to do, but I really need pictures of your company doing something interesting. Oh, okay. Yeah. You know, and they and you take your pictures. So, yeah. yeah, it's a lot. It's a fine line. <laughs> it's a fine line. And then I that's but what it was was going in and dealing with real people in their office spaces in or in factories and whatever, and trying to create journalism. Yeah, making it look like like it's yeah. It, like, it's like a, you're a fly on the wall, exactly. which is what we're supposed to be doing. Well, it turns out, flash forward to now, and I'm giving away a trade secret here. Yep. I think everybody realizes this. So write this one down. This is what companies want. And this is why the stock industry has died. They're not going to spend $30,000 for a picture of two models acting out a scene. They want their staff photographed yeah. and want to use those pictures on the website. So I just kind of made that transition. Yep. And and I already had the portfolio because I had pictures of people working in factories and offices because I'd done a lot of work for Fortune and Business Week and yep. and business stories for the New York Times business desk constantly when I moved back here. And I just kind of I didn't I just kind of parlayed that into listen, I can come into your office and in 30 minutes photograph your entire staff, make them feel comfortable because I've dealt with some real psychotics in my life. Yeah. And, and being able to photograph them. I look at, and, and that's what I told you. I keep my kind of rough and tumble editorial work on my website. Oh, we're getting to that. Right? We're getting to that yeah, next. Just so yeah. these people understand, this guy can handle it. Yeah. I, and, you know, as I tell people, I can handle a, a pain in the ass corporate lawyer and go in there and make pictures because uh, it just was what I've always done. So let me, I'm going to describe something. You tell me if I'm right or wrong. So there is, when it comes to, th let's take reportage on one side of the scale, yeah. and let's take commercial photography on the other. This is where I'm going to get in legal trouble, no, 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 ethical no. trouble. Re reportage is sexy, right? Yeah, yeah, Historically. Yeah. Yeah, Scarves, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah, macho yeah. people standing around <laughs> cocktail parties talking about cobble, right? Yeah. Commercial photography, through the eyes of the, of the reportage crowd, has always been kind of looked down upon as if it's a lesser medium. But the truth is... What you're describing as a commercial photographer is an accumulation of every skill you've ever developed as a reportage guy that's now not only translating into this new methodology of photography, but it's also translating into a far more financial, financially successful career in commercial because oh, yeah. commercial rates are much higher. Yep. The licensing fees are different. Is it, would, you, would you say that's accurate? Yeah, yeah. And I, but I, you know, I'd probably, there's probably a Greg Davis commercial photographer around here who would smack me over the head. Well, we well, there's two of us. We'll, we'll, we'll get it <laughs> for for because of the way that commercial worked 20 years ago, 30 years ago, in terms of, you know. Um, but yeah, that's 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 the transition I was able to make because of my skill set. And so when I sometimes when I meet younger photographers, people starting out, it's like you know, your skills will translate into something else. Yeah. Um. You, but you got to have a core set of skills, and you got to develop these skills. So my skill set is. Can you come to our office and photograph our staff? And I can go in there and these people, you know, is t Seattle's a lot of tech guys, you know, workers. In a yeah. Lot of oh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, they, they've got that thousand-yard stare or they're looking <laughs> at their shoes, you know. And, you know, it's like I've got to, I, I've got to wake these people up and do something interesting. And I, I just know I have that ability. And, and the, the clients who hire me are not – I don't do the big campaigns. I'm not the Nike guy. I'm not the yeah. – I don't want that kind of stress. I don't want that kind of overhead. I don't want yeah. that kind of everything. I tend to work with kind of mid-sized companies. A lot of them are industrial. 
Well, I think that's a that's a really important point because in the bad cliche is careful what you ask for. Yes. So um, I was up for an advertising job once for the one of it's a alcohol company, mm. one of the largest in the world, and when I put brass tacks to it and realized that there were three times as many people behind the camera as in front of it, I said, this isn't fun anymore. I I have an entire crew of people that I'm responsible for. We're talking about more money than I've ever made remotely close to in my life. And it, it, more than anything else, I realized this is not me. Mm -hmm. So that's a really important point. I think is that you have understood who you are as a photographer and you found this sweet spot and you're able to just, you're, you're enjoying it. But at the same time, and the clients are happy. Clients are happy, and which, you're getting repeat business, which is a great business, sign. Yeah. But yesterday, we and before I want to move on to the context of your reportage and history and how you present that, there's a little, you and I were joking a little bit about this yesterday, about how you're sitting in your car getting ready to go into the assignment. And no matter how many times you do this, you're playing those games with yourself in your head. Like, this, what, this, uh, what am I doing here? What am I doing? This sucks. The ingredients are not going to be there. Uh, something's going to go wrong. It's that weird I'm a shitty thing. photographer. Why do we still do that? <laughs> <laughs> well, at this point, it's like, you know, my age, I'm 55 years old. I, it's kind of like, well, what else am I going to do? Get <laughs> off your ass and go do this. Yeah. Um, but that's actually always been my, kind of my attitude in the back of my head. It's like, and I, and I, again, I always say, younger photographers, not, I'm not that old, but, you know, 55 years old, I got a little bit of time on my belt. I always say, it's like, it, it's that you see it in the eyes, the hunger for it. It's like, or the panic. Like, Hunger and panic. Like, I, I can't go cl- punch a clock or do the salary thing. It's like, and that's actually, I hate to say it, that's a big motivator for a lot of photographers. And it's actually, a, it's, a, it's a good motivator, but it's also a dangerous motivator because it might not necessarily translate into being a good photographer. Yeah. Because you still have to develop the f- photographic skill. And at the end of the day, you're actually doing exactly the same thing as other people. You know, you're, you have to treat it as a job. Yeah. You have to be professional. You have to invoice. You have to da 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 And you have to present yourself professionally. And you have to sh- show up on time. Or well, 30 minutes early, as I always say. Yeah. Um, and all this kind of basic stuff. And, and there, there's so many flaky photographers out there. It's unbelievable. You know, and I occasionally have to hire a second photographer assistant who will show up two minutes before a shoot. Yeah. You know, work. And I'm looking at him like, you know, that classic, if you're early, you're on time. You're on time, you're late. If you're late, you're fired. Yeah. That's literally my attitude about it. And they, especially any, the younger kids, they're just like, kind of like, I'm like, dude, especially in California, I don't want to go back to your old home state. No, go some, ahead, take a swing. Some of those guys, take a they, swing. they come wandering in <laughs> like a minute before the guillotine's <laughs> about to drop. And you look, I'm like, dude, you should have been in the coffee bar 45 minutes ago. Yeah. <laughs> waving to me. I'm like, I'm ready when you are. And, and, and so what I'm saying is, is I see this in photography. There's a certain, there has to be a hunger for it. There has to be a certain desperation. And any time I meet a photographer who's really confident and knows what they're doing. <laughs> wary, wary. <laughs> very, very Stranger wary. danger. Yeah. I, one of the funny, let me tell you one last final yeah, yeah, story. Go ahead. I mean, no, no, back, no. We got way my, more coming. Back to my film days. You know, I'm in a photo lab in Tokyo. I've got the name of the big famous photo lab. And I've got all my slides laid out and I'm looking at them. And there's another photographer there. And he's, he's a foreigner. He's a guy, Jin. I think he was from out of town coming through. I, I'm looking through him. He says, are you professional? Yeah, yes. Do you do you always know what you got? Are you always like, yeah, I got it? And I'm sitting there looking at my film, going, no. <laughs> I I would get a sheet of thirty five, and you look at there, go, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit. Oh, thank God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, thank God, I got it. <laughs> and that still happens sometimes. Yeah. But and and I'm going. Does that mean I'm a crappy photographer? And I swear to God, you talk to the best photographers in the world, they have that every time. Yeah. <laughs> But they just, they learn to fight through it. 
You have to fight through those fears. You have to understand you're going to fail in a 35, 36 frames. Kids, that's what we used to shoot. Yep. You're going to get 35 crappy frames. Yep. Or you might, you know, you might get eight rolls of film with, you know, 100 and whatever crappy frames in one good frame. Yeah. You know, and that's it. That's, that's all it. you need. And that's all you need. And you have to be able to find that picture. And, yeah, you have to and know you, what it and is. And when you took that picture, invariably when I pulled out those rolls, I knew where that picture was. I had, I had to just go back. Where is that picture? Oh, thank God. There it is. It. Yeah, yeah, thank God. It. Thank God. Relief. That, and that way, as we call it, chimping in the old days. So I want to talk about one Sorry. thing close before we move on to what we're a little bit deeper dive into what we just talked about, which to me is 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 uh, the concept of this being a com- between a hobby and something that's in your DNA. But you use your reportage history and your travel history in a very strategic way on your website. So you've taken the reportage that you've done, and it's on your phone. And one of the most amazing things about you is that you have a re- your your digital asset management is absolutely incredible because we can. We'll talk about something that, like the, the picture of the Burmese night where you're in Rangoon on the back of the tuk-tuk and, the, yeah, yeah. and then four guys, punks, walking yeah. at you. And on your phone, you had that showing in me within seconds. And that is not an easy thing. That gets totally taken for granted. But I love how you strategically use the reportage history in your life as a commercial photographer. So if you go to stewardisaac.com. Isaac.com. Isaac.com. Uh, the steward is your, your evil twin <laughs> site. So Isaac.com. That reportage is there, but you're not beating anyone on the head with I'm, it. But I'm not all, getting employed f- to do that. Exactly. But you see it and you go, Jesus, like this is, that is a, that's an entirely separate career that you're using. And what you're, you're basically saying, I can handle anything because look at what I've handled already. Even though you're not, you know, you're going into an office in Seattle to shoot a tech mm. executive, but that residue has an impact with people. And is that how and why you use it? Um, <laughs> why I use it sounds so manipulative. <laughs> but no, uh, you no, it, 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 I, I put, I keep it on there to explain who I am. Your history. Yeah, your history. And it's like, you know, you can probably tell by this podcast, he's heavily caffeinated. Yeah, oh yeah, we both are. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like grinding um, my you teeth. Know, but, and, and, you know, I, 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 I kind of, I race 120 miles an hour and then I take a nap <laughs> because, because <laughs> I have two speeds on and on off. On and off. And that's it. And so when I, I, the work is kind of there to say, this is what happens when he's on. And this is the kind of energy and passion he's going to bring to the work. And and my God, he's been to all these countries, and we can drop him anywhere. I think he can handle some rude tech guy yeah. in an office in Tokyo. And sorry, in in Seattle. I think I think I think that's within his range. And then of course you can go to my some of my portrait work. Well, he's already done these people. You know, he's already shot Bill Gates. I, I you know, and if you ever shoot Bill Gates, you're like. That's the five most awkward minutes of my life. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and you talk to any friend, what was photographing Bill Gates? I go, the five most awkward minutes of my life. <laughs> very smart guy, but he's a tough subject. He's a yeah, very a tough legend, person. Legendarily he's tough. Tough to photograph. Yeah. Um, so, it, and it's, it's kind of like, what's the difference between photographing a very awkward, difficult person like Bill Gates and photographing Khmer Rouge Killer? Yeah. I mean, yeah, obviously I'm not going to get whacked photographing bill gates but hopefully hopefully but they're still like kind of well you know i gotta i have to make i got yes yeah, uncomfortable you, you gotta make this work and you gotta bury that deep inside of you and that gets back to what i was saying it's like that i don't trust any photographer who's confident um and people always say to how are you so confident it's like, oh, i'm not confident it's, yeah i just, just you gotta fight through it Pro- projecting yeah um okay so i'm gonna move on here because we still have a couple of really important points and we're coming up on an hour 
Um, this is just something I want to touch on because we've talked a lot about the difference between photography being a, a hobby and something that there is a lifelong sort of DNA level commitment to. And I'm just going to put some names out here because uh, you, you brought up Larry Burroughs yesterday, mm-hmm. English photographer recovered Vietnam. And I said, that's the reason I became a photographer. Welsh, we, Welsh and, and, photographer. Welsh. And then we, we basically referenced immediate, you know, we just started describing photos that we both knew, the Hilltop Landing Zone, the Yankee Papa 13. Philip Jones Griffiths, you wrote your thesis on. Yep. And he was and a, Larry Burroughs. And, and he was an, was he English? Uh, actually, Did, I got it wrong. I, uh, Philip Jones Griffiths is Welsh. Um, Larry Bowes. There we was, go. Larry Bowes was English. Yeah. You, you put some doubt in me there. Yeah. But these are these were got Philip Jones Griffiths. For those of you who don't know, Magnum photographer. Um, he did a, a book called Vietnam Inc. and got actually got deported from Vietnam because of the work because that he was work, doing yeah. there. Bill Burke. Yep. Another Burke. guy. Yep. But much later. Yep. Um, Salgado was a name that we yep. we've brought up a few times, yep. and also Philip, a guy like Philip, Philip. where his yeah. full commitment to what's going yep. on here. And just tell me, like, what are, what are what are those names? And also, we talked about Susan Mizellus. We talked about Maggie Steber. There's tons of uh, women photojournalists that we talked going all the way back to like Dickie Chappelle. Susan, I met Susan Mizellus, Mary Ellen Mark were two of my biggest influences. I was able to meet before, right before she died in Los Angeles. I met Catherine Lois, who oh, won the wow. won the yeah, Leica yeah. Medal and, yeah. and was captured by the NVA. So there's a t- these these are people that commitment is a level that goes way beyond I think what many people even know. Is that accurate? Yes. And is that what what impact did they have on you when you realized like I can't just this is not dabbling? I, it's actually it was it was this is where I hit the wall. Um, do I want to be married and raise kids and kind of be, as the French would say, bourgeois? Yeah. Or do I want to be out there? And I didn't want to be out there anymore. It's just like it's, it's you just kind of realize, and you know, uh, I used to always joke, ah, oh, there's like two photographers I knew who are still married, and, <laughs> and then suddenly it's like, oh shit, I'm the only one left. <laughs> and and uh, you know, many years ago, I met a young photographer here in Seattle. Said, you know, they wanted to, to go overseas and travel, and, mm-hmm. and I said, well, you should do it. I said, but my girlfriend. And I kind of looked at him like, dude. It was actually a woman. I should say that she, she said it was her boyfriend, and I was like. Well, if they're not willing to go with you, you're not going to be able to, you know. Yeah, it, it's, it's a it's, choice. And, and and so it's it's very hard to have that level of commitment. Yeah. And stay in, and I wanted kids. Yeah. And, you know, all my assignments now within most of them, you know, I travel quite a bit, but I, most of it's pretty local, you know. And if I'm out of town, it's to L.A. for a few days and then I come back. But I, I couldn't do it. I couldn't keep doing that. And your kids, having met them now, um, they're, they're pretty decent. They're, 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 they're a good lot, uh, both of them. The young one wants to be a photographer, and I just kind of look at it like, uh, <laughs> like let's change the subject. <laughs> but it's it's so you know you're talking about commitment, yeah. I I and I have so much respect for those people, but it was probably around 2003, Perpignan. After a few years of that, and I'm looking at this, and I you know I was married with Jenny at that point. We had our first kid 2005 when we were living in France, and I was just like no, and I had a you know right. <laughs> Right before when Jennifer was seven months pregnant, you know, I, the baby dropped early, and I was in a desert in the Taklamakan Desert in China, on an oil rig, oil platform, because they were looking for oil, and there had to be a, they had a cell phone antenna out in the middle of the desert, and my phone rang, and, and it's like Stuart, this is Elizabeth, but don't worry, Jennifer's okay, but she's in the hospital. Oh boy. Yeah. Oh boy. 
this is this is my beautiful 16 year old daughter Zoe now. So I had to get my ass out of the Taklamakan Desert, which if you look at a map, it's it's halfway between Shanghai and, and Paris. <laughs> but I had to go back to Shanghai. There's no flight from Taklamakan Desert. <laughs> yeah. And then get back there. Of course, I walk into the hospital room. Jennifer goes, why do you rush back? <laughs> but it, it, I haven't done a trip like that. I haven't done a four-week trip. Mm, Jennifer will probably argue with me. I, I, I've maybe done a couple of two-week trips to Cambodia at some point. But I, 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 you can't do that. Yeah. And, and, you know, to do a good story, you have to be out there for at least minimum four weeks. After all your research, lining up all your ducks, if you can I, hit the go r- road running with your Driver, your assistant, your translator, everything lined up and the story and the dates and everything. You can maybe do it in four weeks. I want it, I want you to repeat that again. I want <laughs> you to repeat the part about after you've done your research, yeah. a minimum of four weeks. Yeah, yeah. That is one of the things, that is one of my pet peeves about the modern industry and sort of people coming into the industry is this idea that there's a, there's get, there's a demand for immediate relevancy with no research and no time in the field yeah. to do the kind of like reportage stuff. There is no substitute for time and access. And that's often just your first trip to yeah. do that story. Well, let's, let's, <laughs> let's take, we, I, I mentioned Salgado earlier. Salgado has yeah. a new book on the Amazon and I think it's either 48 or 63. 48 or 63 separate trips into the Amazon, some of which were months at a time. I couldn't do that, it. That is the bar. Yeah, when yeah, I came yeah. out of school, yeah. Salgado's 10-year increments of workers, yeah. and that was the bar. If you were going to play in that arena, you knew that he was out there, and you knew seven-year assignment from Rolling Stone, exhibitions, books, yeah. all of this stuff, and you're like, that's, that's the, the one. You know, Susan Mizella, same thing. All of these people, that's a level of commitment. And I just want that to slowly sink in with the folks who are reading this. That and, just and, know what you're, and know what you're capable of. Because I figured out what I'm capable of and I've set that bar at that. Because at this point, I'm not going to go spend six months in the Amazon. Yeah. You know, and I, I often fantasize, well, maybe when the kids go off to college, but you know, I'm still married. Yeah. And I, <laughs> and I don't know if I, you know, I'm getting at that point, I'm going to be in my 60s. You know, with shitty knees. So, so. Look, you said I need a shower in the van, so I don't think the Amazon's in your future. So, so you know, you have to know what what you're willing to commit to. And I think a lot of people overcommit. I've known so many photographers who, I, I told you about this one guy I knew, who described two types of photography, hard and soft. Of course, I say it with my English working class accent, so friends might know who I'm talking about. Hard and soft. There's hard and soft photography, Stuart. So that's, you do a lot of soft work, Stuart. I never quite understood what he meant by that, but it, but the hard was this full-on commitment, you know, Rwanda, whatever. Well, they've all burned out, or they're divorced, yeah. or they failed. They 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 put in all that commitment, and they didn't become the next Nakway, which is what they all wanted to be. This yeah. is a generational thing. Yeah. I I can't remember to tell you how many people wanted to be like that. And having met James a few times, I, I was like, I I don't have that level of commitment. That's yeah. I, and I totally respect it. I don't look down on it. Oh yeah, but, no, but it it's it's almost it's a religious devotion almost for some of these people. It's it's completely Well, so. I mean I think when Nactway's name comes up, you know, and and for those of you who are talking about uh, James Nactway or Jim Nactway who was really the definitive war photographer of the modern era it in influenced a lot of us. Yeah. And, you know, the books, I found his Deeds of War book in the UT Austin half-price bookstore and I was like, "Wow, this, you know, that was my first introduction to him." And the level, you know, people are like, "Oh, he's kind of a quirky guy." <clears throat> well, look at the work. Look at Inferno. Look at what he did over that time frame. There's how do you not be a little bit quirky to yeah, do that kind yeah, of thing? Yeah. But yeah, the level of commitment was is so far beyond, I think, on the surface because now we often live in these facades of what something is. For example, perfect example, van life. I live part of my life in a van. 
and people look at van life things online and they have this romantic notion of what I'm doing. And I'm like, I haven't taken a shower in a week, you know, the roof leaks, whatever. And, and people are like, oh, that's not the van life uh, I was thinking about. That doesn't rhyme with what I see online. I, I can't tell you the number of young photographers I've said, you need to buy a one-way ticket, some country that you've always been interested in, learn the language before you go, buy a one-way ticket, get a $100 a month apartment with no AC, you know, one room like I had in Bangkok. When I mean one room, it was just one room. <laughs> just one. <laughs> we would even describe a studio and do it and, and not have a plan to come back. And, and very few people can make that kind of commitment. Yeah. It's hard. I mean, that's, it's, hard. that's a big, it's a big step. So I, I get, and there's a lot of, uh, you know, there were, uh, there were a million times in my career where I was intimidated by one thing yeah. or another or a person. And I think that's natural, but to your point, I think the, the point I just want to stress here is the commitment. Okay. We need yeah. to move on here cause we're, uh, right. we're going, but I want to talk right. about, um, the recent book, your recent introduction. And by the way, the house that I'm sitting in Stewart's house is filled with photography books <laughs> and photo- photographs on the wall. So the level of commitment to the to the printed page is a big deal. I don't think that's even something we have to we have to stress how important that is. But you have a new book. Yeah, it came out. God, what month are we in now? We're, we're in, in we're in oh, October. October. Holy cow! So it came out yeah earlier this year, like March, I think. And it's already sold out. <laughs> yeah, it's already sold out. <laughs> so yeah, it was. Uh, so we're going back in the time machine. So you know what goes around comes around. Um, and, and I realized that photography could be like wine. It can get better and more relevant with age. Um, so it was this project I did for my master's thesis in Chicago. Uh, main, most of the bulk of the workshop from 92 to 94 while I was in grad school, um, showing these pictures every week on the wall um, of Cambodia. I started off as Cambodian refugee project because I'd been in Thailand. I'd fascinated with uh, part of my work in Thailand was always interested in Cambodia, but you couldn't get in Cambodia in the eighties. Right. Um, but you know, I'd language, everything else. I'd been to the refugee camps along the Thai Cambodian border. I knew this country's history inside and out. A lot of the Cambodians spoke Thai because they spent so many years in Thailand. Um, and so I'm in Chicago and I just started hanging out, you know, like you old, you know, go to the, go to the temple, do some cultural event. And I'm like, you know, and, I hate that kind of photography because it's just so easy. You know, look, Chinese New Year pictures. Like, oh, God. But uh, there were these guys hanging out in the back of the room who just kind of, they were 18, 19, I was 23, 24. And they were just kind of surly. Like, oh, God, our parents dragged us here. And it was these Cambodian gang members um, from the local gang, um, Argyle and Glenwood. And this was an intersection in, in, right near where I was living um, in uptown in Chicago, Argyle and Glenwood. There were two large apartment buildings all filled with Cambodian refugees. And the local OLBs, which were originally from California gang, were the gang there. And these were these guys. And I spent two years in and out of these houses, apartments, just kind of living. In there. I mean, my, my now wife, Jennifer, used to, you know, it's like Saturday night. Sorry, guys. I'm sorry, Jen. I'm hanging out with the guys. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Jenny, Jenny's in the background. I showed you one of the pictures. Like, yeah. there, there's Jenny in one of these pictures. She, it's like, where are you taking your girlfriend for a date? To hang out with a bunch of Cambodian gang members on the street corner. <laughs> <laughs> Sexy. Um, but I, so I, I did this work, and it was the classic. Back then, it was, you you know, cocaine blue, cocaine true, whatever. Um, Eugene Riches, this is black and white. You're embedded. You're living the story. Um, I specifically avoided violence. Yeah, um, smart. Unlike that book, um, it was a lot of pictures of them with their girlfriends, with their parents, their family. I was fascinated in that kind of inside the house being more Cambodian, outside, you know, going out in cars, cruising around Chicago in the middle of the night, meeting America. Yeah. You're like, just that bang clash between 
and and I knew the history of this, what happened to these kids. You know, I knew all the Cambodian prime ministers and presidents. That I'd read all the William Shaw. I'd read all the literature on modern and pre-modern Cambodian history. I mean, it was, I knew the subject. And so I, I photographed it, and then, you know, I showed it to, I told you the story, I sent it off to New York, I got my first gig ever, New York Times Magazine, you know, it was like, been downhill ever since, yeah, <laughs> based I on peaked. that work, and then I sold it a couple of times in a, to magazines in Asia, because nobody in the U.S. was interested in publishing it. Yeah, no, no um, surprise no there. Here. Um, never made money off this thing, you know, I just probably didn't even cover my film expenses. Yeah. And then kind of buried it away. But it had always been part of my life. And every time I got a new scanner, I would rescan some of these work. And then flash forward, someone reaches out to me, and, and the work was out there, and they said, I want to publish this. And it was a British guy who did a lot of work on, he lived in Cambodia, but he has a small press called Catfish. And they do a lot of, he does a lot of work on Southeast Asia. Okay. And he wanted to publish these pictures. And I was like, ooh. Okay. <laughs> um, but I, I also know times have changed. And the, the days of the scarf-wearing yeah. white guy going into is this is not, is this not how we should work anymore. Yeah. And I, I totally get that. So we re I reached out to a young Cambodian photographer I knew and a young Cambodian activist here um, uh, and, uh, in Tacoma, Pete Penn and, um, uh, and uh, Silong. And I said, you guys need to edit this work. You lived through this time. There were younger kids then. I want you to go through, I, you know, put out 100 prints, edit this work, and tell me, tell me what you see. And that was the process. And we did that last summer over Zoom with Charles and just had all these meetings and all this back and forth. And we just created this little zine. I would call it a zine plus. You know, it's a, yeah, yeah, it's for, for those of you who don't know, Zine is an informal magazine or an underground magazine. Mm -hmm. There's about 30,000 different zines published in America every year. Uh, the zine industry really dates back to around the 1930s when this started. And the zine market and the art book market now is is one of the real positive things that's happening I see in the photo world, which is that it's exploding. So the traditional models of publishing are under economic stresses that we haven't seen before. And so there's a lot of great projects that are just not going to get that classic coffee table book. And frankly, probably don't really need that or want that kind of classic coffee table book. So... The zine is beautifully printed, but there's a nice little slipcase around the yep. outside of it as well. And it's small, it's approachable, and it's the kind of publication to me that appeals to people that are far outside of the photo world because it's not this precious object that you're afraid of that you put on a shelf because no one, you don't want anybody to ruin it. And also, you know, back then these were poor immigrant refugees sure. and genocide survivors. I'm not going to put that in a $150 coffee table book. Exactly. I, I, I'm just like, that. that, that is... Completely inappropriate. Exactly. I yeah. like, I want them to be able to buy it. And th this is the flip side of it. Why we didn't print enough. <laughs> yeah. Because it turns out the Cambodian community has been transformed in 25 years. A lot of younger Cambodians, you know, they've, they've gotten out of these kind of Cambodian ghettos. They're, they're college educated. They're doing well. They're doing arts and media and all kinds of stuff. And they were all the little kids in the back of the room in these pictures who were less affected by the, the coming to this country. Yeah. Because um, the guys I were photographing specifically remember the genocide. You know, the, the, these younger kids were, actually most of them were born after it, were in the early 80s in the U.S., but they were like, holy crap, that's how I grew up. I yeah. grew up in these apartments with 15 family members with no furniture, you know, the smell of Cambodian cooking, and, and it exploded. And we, we were completely unprepared for this. And I'm saying it's like good wine. 
thank thanks you know it's like yeah. you open it up and suddenly it's like oh wow you know because oh, i always joke is like i have a good my good friend here in town charles peterson who did the same thing Unfortunately, he did it with his buddies in a band called Nirvana. So, oh, yeah, yeah. A little, little band called Nirvana. So, 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 so he's able to sell his work a lot better than I can. And I always kind of laugh about it. It's like, yeah, maybe I chose the wrong subject matter, but that's it's, it's a joke because I, that's not what I would have done. I, I was interested in this the subject matter, but it's just interesting how over time, I would have never seen this coming. I would never have seen this level of interest. And the, yeah, I showed you some of the texts and emails I got from people. Oh yeah, yeah. They were they are uh, thrilled to say the least. Yeah, and, and proud. And proud. And, pr- pr- and, and I, you know, I was scared because I know the politics of particularly in the photojournalism have shifted dramatically particularly for sure. in the last ten, gen, 10 years in terms of being inside or outside of photography. And we grew up in that gen. We didn't think like that. Although I will admit, I did. Maybe I was. I hate lack of a better term, work before anybody else was. I understood that if I was going to go in this community, I had to know them inside and out. I had to know yeah. the language. I had to know the history. I couldn't just parachute in. Parachute in. I was never going to be a parachute. So, but, but when I did the book, I wanted the community involved in it. So it was really rewarding. And was it one of the most interesting parts of this whole process was there are images of violence, guns and stuff like that. And some of these younger Cambodians, that's what they wanted to see. And I nixed it. And, and I was very adamant about it because I said, you know, that that was 99.999% of their lives was sitting around smoking cigarettes yeah, and drinking beer. It wasn't this. And I just don't want it out there. Yeah. I, I want to bury it. So it, it, it was, but, it, but I'm saying involving the Peter and Salong in this process was, was, it was the right way to do it. Yeah. In th- that's the, the foundation you needed. Yeah. Um, the, it also speaks to something very, just very s- super quick I want to hit on, which is the idea of a, of a photographic archive. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I always, I'm fascinated by archives. I have photographer friends that I met um, in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're, he's waving at his, uh, his archive of uh, film images on the wall behind us. But I have friends who are traveling the world now living off of their archive. And a lot of times younger photographers will come to me and say there's no such thing anymore as an archive. Or, there, or no one is making imagery that will have any value in the future. And that is such an astounding well, point of view in my if opinion. If it's bad photography, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, if it's content, I get it. If yeah. it's good photography like the gang project, you spent two years of your mm-hmm. life immersed in that story. So archiving is something I want to do. Okay, I have two, two last uh, questions here. And uh, the, and I want these rapid fire answers. What's the biggest misconception about what you do that young photographers have that that you would be would you see as a public service of like saying, hey, don't think that this is this way. It's actually this that, other way. That is romantic. That is romantic. <laughs> <laughs> and in other words, is that I, I, is that the going back to the ninety percent business? Yeah, yeah, and, and just being professional. You know, it's that whole sitting around pooping yawn and, and, and that kind of stuff. It was like you know, I, I went through a little bit of that phase. It was like you know, we all I, did. I, I could actually in my closet here. I've got a whole rack of Cambodian scarves. I know you did. <laughs> Literally, like twenty of them hanging there, gathering dust. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've seen you. I've seen pictures. You know, hanging out I, cafes in Paris and sipping on your espresso. I mean, that'll only get you so far. And, and, and it's, it's like, yeah, it's, it's the, you, you got, it's work. It's, it's, and I t- tell people, it's like, you know, it's, I've told my kids this, I said, you know, it doesn't matter what you want to do in life, be the best at it. And I always say, if you want to be a professional nose picker, just be the best one. Yeah. Just be really good. Practice. Be, practice. Do it over and over again. It doesn't matter what, and it doesn't matter what field you decide to go into. And you have to embed, you have to learn the history of it. You have to learn, you can't be superficial about this. You know, you, if you, if you don't know who Beaumont Newhall is, 
You're not a photographer. You got a little homework. Got a little homework to do. It's like Museum of Modern Art, the Americans, the, you know, all this stuff that we had to, to got shoveled to us. We went, oh, God, all these old guys. But I learned this stuff. You know, I learned the history of photography going back to Daguerreo. And if you don't know this stuff, you don't know your history. You don't know who Yank, Yank we were talking yesterday, Yanka Papa 13. I'm sorry, if you're a photographer, you don't know Yanka. And you might look at it and go, well, that's not very interesting pictures. You go, no, no, you have to imagine yourself. Yeah. In 1963, after living in 1950s America, after World War II, where photography, black and white, was David Douglas Duncan, the Americans, the hero. A little yep. bit rough in Korea, but the Americans were always the heroes. The Americans never really suffered. We were doing good. And suddenly, Yankee Papa 13 hits the stand. And it's yeah. like, Uh-oh. holy shit, our country is... Yeah. Yeah, this is not the... Uh, the this the this, May- is not, this is in this, Mayberry. The, yeah, this is Mayberry. And and if you don't know that history, now it might be completely irrelevant to what you're doing. You might think it, but it's not. Well, and also if you want to peel back the onion a little more to blow your mind, is you want to study uh, photo history, yes, for sure. History itself, and then throw in art history on yeah. top of that and, and the influence of how... And design. So it's a, it's a lifelong education. I mentioned this to you so yesterday. This is by the you asked for a, a shotgun answer. So <laughs> <off> we go. <laughs> um, I, I, my task after <clears throat> I spent uh, the past couple of days with Michelle Dunmarsh here in town, who's a publisher and a designer and a friend. And I, you know, Michelle, five minutes of talking to her. And my, my first thought is, oh, my God, I don't know anything. I haven't started yet. And so I have a list of graphic design books on at the library in Santa Fe when I get back because I'm like, I don't know enough about this. I have to be better. I have to know more. Even though I'm not, am I going to be a graphic designer? No, but I, I, it's a, it's a huge part of what photography and books is about. So, okay. Shotgun answer. It's not romantic. It's not romantic. Okay. The next shotgun answer is the demands of modern photography are shifting. Um, Timelines are shorter. Budgets are smaller. And you've also got this social thing. Is there any pressure on you to do social stuff no. with your commercial? Okay, I, good. I, 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 you look at my Instagram account, you'd never know a professional. I, I actually say these are pictures of my kids because I, I, it's just, yeah, you know, I'm a t- terrible self-editor. Um, I, I don't know what works and what doesn't. My, I just, I, I, I the, something in my brain doesn't quite connect. Um, I, I am very hard translating my work into a vision or, you know, I, sometimes you meet these photographers who can just explain themselves and I'm just like, uh. <laughs> <laughs> I feel, I'm just like a chimp with a camera. So, so I, uh, Instagram is just, is the only thing I use, but it's not for work. But I, what I do work on is my website. Yeah. And cause I like that idea of a gallery. And I, I am on my website, and I know photographers. I look at the website, and they haven't changed it in five years. They, yeah. Hey, look, it's still HTML1. We were joking about this. Scan on an LS1000 in 1998, your Provia. Your, your contrasty chromes. Chromes, yeah. yeah. And, and I told you, I went out and rescanned all my stuff on an Imicon, which a friend had. You know, and I think only you my killed his Imicon. I did. I did. <laughs> <laughs> That's a different story. Um, but I, you know, I, I went out, and, and but I, I was like, I need my website is my gallery. Okay. I want people to land, and you know, I, I, I have Google SEO. I work on it. Yeah. But you know what I do? I, you know, whenever I get to, you know, those emails, do you want ten thousand hits a day? It's like, no, I want one hit a day. I want the right one. I want the right one. So my, my whole Google thing is elimination. I don't want these people coming to my website. I want these people coming to my website. And whenever I see these search terms, it's like, what the yikes. hell? How, yikes. How did you wind up on my website? You're gone. Um, <laughs> don't take it personally. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so the, my website to me is my gallery. Okay. It's, that's your nerve center. That's my nerve center. And, and I blog fairly regularly. Dude, I'm telling and you. I, and if I look, I don't look at the traffic of my blog. It, I might get one or two hits, but you know, maybe when they 
bury me, my kids will read it. I don't know. Look, I, I love to write. I think I'm an okay writer. You are a really good writer. You are. When and I it, and it really there. infuriates me. To, uh, last question. <laughs> that English-British schooling. I know. That's, that's the, the one thing. advantage. I, I when I came to, to the school. U.S., I'm glad these people are. <laughs> I was dodging, like, you know, gang members, and uh, there were, you know, fights all day. We the were teachers reading getting Macbeth. Beat up. <laughs> um, yeah, you're reading Macbeth, and I'm, like, watching my science teacher get beaten up in class. Um, the last question, very simple. What do you need? What do you need that you don't have? In photography? Yeah. Oh God! Like equipment's not the right answer. Um. <laughs> it could be anything. There's no right, no right um, and wrong here. I don't know. I don't actually. Again, I don't think of that way. Uh, what I, it, to me, it's like it's like managing chaos. It's like managing. But you, know, you don't I, need a studio manager. No, I don't need a studio manager. Um, you know, like everybody else, I need. I would love to have one person who truly believed me and go out and sell my work and be an agent. And then okay. you read, and then you read all these horror stories about yeah, people with agents. Yeah, so yeah. and it's kind of like, well, you know, that's kind of a fantasy. That yeah. there, there's an adult in the room. I always wish I had there was an adult in the room, kind of looking over my shoulder, going, "Stuart, you really shouldn't do it." But there's no person like that. So I only know a couple photographers who have uh, relationships with their agents that go back 25, almost 30 years, yeah. and they are it's on it's it's an incredible thing to watch. I know yeah. two guys in They're LA lucky. that. They're lucky, and I, I, I that's yeah. the one thing I, I it's like. Uh, you know, if you're if you're out there, yeah. <laughs> uh, calling all agents. Um, well, I think uh, we're going to cut it off there, and uh, I think we could keep talking about this stuff all day. I need to grab a camera, and make a couple of pictures in this room of things we reference: the Rocket Festival, the archive behind me. I'll email this. But to you. Um, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. Um, I this is something I wish we could do all the time. I wish we lived closer because um, you're you are an encyclopedia of photography, and that's something I have a great appreciation for. I am, as I do what you said first day came out, I'm a working photographer. I I like to knock myself down a few notches. I always found photojournalists to be a little too pretentious. <laughs> <laughs> no, come on. Well, thanks again. Thanks. I appreciate it, and uh, we'll see you soon.